Paul, it is so good to have you here at Haven Campus Church. And I said it earlier, we want to thank Jill for giving up of your time to speak into this amazing space. Paul, where are you serving right now? Uh, I run the counselling training programs at Avondale University College. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, you used to serve back in Sydney is that correct? Did you? Uh, yeah, I worked at Adventist Counselling Services, and I worked at Sydney Adventist College, a school that no longer is. But <laughs> um, yeah, I was a school counsellor there for about six years. Wow! So God is taking you in a, in a number of different places, and um, we want to say thank you for coming into speaking to us. I know you're incredibly busy. Evandel tends to do that to their those who work in that space. Just just a little, just a little bit, but um. Before we go there, I just wanted to give opportunity for our church community to know you a little bit better, and I just want to throw a couple of easy icebreaker questions. See, when you say easy, I'm easy. not sure I can trust you, Ian. It, 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 They're pretty deep, but I'm pretty sure you'll be able to handle them. Paul, where is your favorite place to unwind? What do you oh, love doing? Um, I enjoy the boat. We... Uh, my wife and I are lucky enough to have a boat, and Lake Macquarie is a pretty good place to have it. So when we can get the boat out, when the weather cooperates, that's nice. That's a that's pretty special when we can do a day on the boat. Oh, if my dad was here, he'd be giving you an amen right now. He's definitely a boat person, and a, he loves fishing. Do you like fishing? Or is that not really Oh, yours? yeah. I think I accidentally caught a fish a few months ago <laughs> when I wasn't kind of expecting... Um, during COVID, uh, we took the boat out a number of times. There wasn't really anything else to do on weekends during COVID. And uh, one of the, the things that had gone out on uh, the website was that you could take your boat out if you were fishing because that was doing sport. Otherwise, you couldn't take your boat out. And suddenly, everybody on Lake Macquarie who had a boat had a fishing line out the back. And so I went to my neighbour, borrowed a fishing line, and thus accidentally caught a fish. Accidentally. Did you give it a kiss and put it back? I, I did put it oh, back. I on, gave it good life. On you, yes. Good on you, Paul. Well, we're talking about relationships, and um, I told you I was going to throw different questions. What we originally had said at the back, I tend to do that. I'm very spontaneous that way. But about relationships, what is your go-to meal to cook at home? Is there a go-to meal that you love cooking? My wife would always say, in, you know how to cook, you love cooking, but you never cook. Is there a go-to meal that I, you go to? Fr- Friday night is, uh, I'm on. My wife's decided that uh, she's cooked during the week and uh, it's time for her to <laughs> collapse. And normally she just comes home straight on her phone, connects with the world, and uh, I'm in the kitchen cooking. And I actually don't mind that and I often find a new recipe to cook. Um, I think probably one of the favourite recipes that I do uh, that we both really enjoy is a roasted capsicum and roasted tomato soup, which is really nice. I actually still have – I did such a huge amount of it last weekend that I – have enough for this weekend still to read, <laughs> but it's it's a fairly special soup. That sounds impressive, Jill. How is that? How is that cuisine, Master Chef style? Well, Paul, we want to again thank you for coming this way and speaking to us. It will be today as well as next week. But before you go into that, we just love to have a word of prayer with you, my friend. Okay. All right, Father God, we just want to take this time to once again honor you, to uplift you, and to give you thanks. And Lord, we want to thank you for the ministry that 
that Paul has been so heavily involved in. Lord, I know you touched his life so long ago and you have blessed him and you have spoken through, so, through him to so many people, Lord. And we pray once again that your spirit be present, that you open our hearts and minds. We're talking about a, such an important topic about relationships, that we're all involved in some sort of relationships. And I know, Lord, you have been the ultimate example in how we should treat our partners, how we should treat our friends and our family and our kids, Lord, because you are the, the best, perfect example of what a perfect relationship looks like. But Lord, we just pray that you just speak through Paul. And I pray that our hearts and our minds and our spirits are blessed for it. So thank you again, Father God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul. See you. Well, good morning. I really do feel honored to be at the Haven Church. I've heard about Haven for many, many years this church that does cutting-edge stuff, part of the community, operating out of a school. So it is rather special to be here. It's also good to see how many people I know here. Um, all morning I've been running into people that I've known in various areas. John Den just came up to me and reminded me that it's probably 40 years since we've seen each other, which means you're really old, John. Um, that's what that means. It doesn't mean I'm old, but it means you're old. That's because I know you were a little bit ahead of me at college, so a bit scary. It's been that long. I also wanted to thank your pastor, Ian, for giving me an honorary PhD. It's always nice to get one of those. Um, for those of you who know me, you know that uh, I'm desperately trying to get a PhD. But there's this weird thing. You have to write about 100,000 words um, for one of those rotten things. And so to come to church and just automatically get one is just really, really nice. And I want to thank Ian for that. Um, I'm actually going to go back to my supervisors on Monday and say, I don't need you anymore. Um, and ask Avondale to pay me more in accordance with the fact that I now have a PhD. I'll let you know how that goes. It's also very special to see a few of my former students here this morning. Really great to run into Ben and his family again, to run into Kim. And uh, Kim, very fond memories of you sitting in my classes. So, uh, yeah, and the very fact that people like Ben and Kim and others who've maybe had to endure a class of mine actually chose to come to church this morning um, to listen to me yet again um, just shows something about your ability to persevere and wonder thank you for that. Just before I start, just a uh, shameless plug for Avondale. would not be right for me not to do that. Um, Avondale University College started off well this year. Last year, as you can imagine, uh, with a little bug that was going around that you may remember. Um, it, it was a tough year. After just three weeks at college, we sent all of our students home. That was not good for them, and it certainly wasn't good for us. And then we all retreated to our homes and ran the rest of the um, semester by Zoom, which we've all become experts on Zoom. This year has started off much better. Avondale has had about a 12 or 13% increase in numbers. So that's good because uh, many universities are struggling for numbers and we really thank the Lord for having about a 12 or 13% increase. And for a uh, college our size, that's, that's really significant. I've also been very thankful that I've had the largest intake of counselling students ever into the three counselling courses that we run. And if you want to know more about anything 
to do with Avondale, or if you've had a thought that you might like to do some units in counselling, we now have three counselling programs, one undergraduate, uh, two postgraduate programs, I would love to chat to you afterwards. It's October 1992, and Giacomo Rizzolati, an Italian neuroscientist and his team, are putting tiny electrodes into the brains of macaque monkeys. What they want to discover, what they're keen to discover, is what neurons are firing when the monkeys do something as complex as moving their hand in order to take some food, in order to take something to their mouth. Obviously, there are quite a few muscles involved, different muscles, and parts of the brain need to tell those muscles how to, how to respond, which ones to pull in, which ones to stretch out. And so they're interested in that. And then the researchers decide to, to have a break. And people are a little bit uh, um, not sure as to whether these researchers, as part of their lunch, were eating a banana, or whether they were eating peanuts, or whether they're eating ice cream. But they were eating something, we know that. And the electrodes were still hooked up to the monkeys. And one of them happens to look across and find something really, really interesting. And what they found was that the brain cells, the neurons, in the monkey's brain are firing in a similar pattern to what they did when the monkeys were raising their own hand to eat, rather than just watching the researchers raise their hand to eat. Indeed, monkey do and monkey see. Initially, what was really interesting about this, initially, when they took it to a journal, this journal said, oh, I don't think this is of public interest, and refused to publish it. When they finally got this published, all kinds of things happened. Huge interest in this idea that there is a mirror neuron system. In other words, that there is a, an ability for our brain cells to fire in a similar way to brain cells of those that we are connecting with or that we are watching. It's been much further research, there's been controversy about what these mirror neuron systems really mean. In 2008, it was found that these systems seem to also be in humans and not just in monkeys. And while they're still considerable disagreement into what is actually going on with these mirror neuron systems. There are many that believe that our ability to step into the pain of others may at least partly be mediated by these mirror neuron systems. So if that is so, that would mean that when you sit with somebody who is telling you a painful story, that some of your neurons it's thought maybe roughly about 10%, are actually lining up to fire in the same pattern as the person whose pain you are listening to. Have you ever noticed that when somebody tells you something really sad, 
one of your children has something happen to them that is really horrible, that you actually literally feel their pain? You actually literally feel their sadness? You actually literally feel their despair? It seems that we are made to connect. These systems and a few others that we want to talk about this morning give testimony to the fact that we are hardwired to live and breathe in community. But of course, that goes against the zeitgeist, the spirit of our times. Because aren't we meant to be independent? Haven't we been told many, many times over that we need to take care of number one, that we need to look out for us, that it is about us. After all, you only go around once. You only get one chance, so you've got to take care of yourself. We shouldn't care, we're told. Don't care what other people think. It doesn't matter. All that matters is what you think. It seems that our neurobiology may be telling us another story. This morning, we want to look inside your head just for a little bit. Counselors like to mess with people's brains. That's what we do. So I just want to look inside your head a little bit and just introduce you to a few parts of your brain that you may have heard about or that you may not have heard about. Let me just see if I can get this going. Here we go. I think it's going to... So deep inside the cerebral cortex, so the front, that's at the front part of your brain, there's a part called the insula. In fact, you have to peel back parts of your brain, the outer layers of the brain, to actually be able to find it. Only more recently have we realized its significance. It's a rather recent discovery. Do you realize that in the insula, is where you register disgust, your own disgust at something. But not only do you register in that part of your brain your disgust, you actually register the disgust of another person. So when they tell you about disgust, it's the same part of your brain that lights up. Another part of the brain is anterior circular cortex. There it is. It's that little part in red. It kind of wraps around. And when, when you feel pain, it, it's that part of the brain that actually tells you that you're in pain. And guess what? When someone else is in physical pain, it's also that same part of your brain that registers. Same part of the brain. It doesn't seem to distinguish all that well between your pain and somebody else's pain. It's been suggested that maybe we don't actually have just a mirror neuron system, but we actually have a mirror brain. I've been fascinated over the years, and I tell my students about this, and I don't think they believe me till they get into their clinical placement and actually do it. But I've been fascinated how many times I sit with a client and I look at my body language and I look at their body language and it's mirroring. And I haven't done it on purpose. I haven't kind of gone, okay, you've got your leg crossed, so I'll cross mine, or I'll put my arm there. It happens automatically. It happens unconsciously. 
And it's really interesting that you can actually observe that in people who aren't necessarily in a counselling situation. Let me show you a few pictures. And another. Leah Gillard. It's a few years ago. Daniel Goleman, who, of course, was the guy who brought us the idea of emotional intelligence and introduced that to us, he said that the more people synchronise their body movements, the more positive they feel towards each other. Married couples who have been together for many years actually start to look like each other because they have been mirroring their their expressions and their facial expressions for that long. Have you ever noticed people who've been married 50, 60, maybe 70 years and you've noticed a similarity between them? It's not your imagination. When I suggested this to my wife uh, this week, she was rather skeptical about that. And I was thinking about that this morning, why Jill didn't kind of want to accept this bit of science, that in 30 years time she didn't want to look like me. Um, and that was why she said, well, that can't be true. But not only do people start to look more similar, the more similar they look, the greater their satisfaction in the relationship. In other words, the more attuned they are to each other and the more emotionally they're attuned, the more physically they're attuned. And the more physically they are attuned, the more emotionally they are attuned. Interesting. There's another part of your brain. And Kim, you'll remember me talking about this. Talk about this a fair bit because it, it's really a, a, a really cool part of your brain. It's just very, very small, about the size of a walnut. There's that little red dot that you can see there in, in the slide. Most of the fights that you have with your spouse are caused to a fair extent, by the amygdala. Most of the fights that you have with other people around you, the fights you have at school, caused to a large extent by the amygdala. Fights that you have with your boss at work. You see, the amygdala is there to protect you from harm. The amygdala there says, hey, Danger, danger, look out. This is something similar to what happened in that situation. So therefore, you better kick in your fight and flight response. The problem is with the amygdala, it's not a very refined sort of system. It can't tell the difference between a danger that happened 30 years ago that it's remembered and the current situation. So why is it responsible? for the fights you have with your spouse, because I would argue that much of what you argue about with your spouse is not actually about that issue. Have you ever noticed that? You notice that, Ian? When you argue with your spouse, you later go, why did I make such a big deal out of that? Why did we both make such a big deal out of that? Why did that get so huge? Well, it probably got huge because the amygdala went off. It's like an alarm system that doesn't always work that well. 
A bit like the smoke alarms in your house that go off when you cook a piece of toast. And they're meant to go off when your house is burning down. Every now and again they go off when they don't need to. And that's what the amygdala does. You see, it, it's, it's suggested by neuroscientists that there is a direct pathway, like a back alley, between the relay centre, in other words, a centre that brings in information from outside, and directly to your amygdala. So bypasses the higher thinking part of your brain. The prefrontal cortex goes direct to the amygdala. So in other words, something happens, it gets relayed, and immediately the fear part of you kicks in and goes, oh heck, we're in trouble. And then you get angry or you withdraw. And it would be interesting if we were doing a workshop or a seminar, I would actually probably get you to identify whether in arguments with your spouse, whether you're the person that withdraws, in other words, flight is what you do, or do you fight? Do you stay there and fight, or do you just withdraw? It's real fun in the relationship when one spouse does one and one does the other. One wants to stay there and fight, and the other's gone. They've put up the walls, they've stonewalled, they've gone, I'm out of here. This is far too scary. And we think it's about what is happening just in the here and now, and often it's what's been triggered. Often it's what the amygdala, which is responsible for emotional memory, what it has stored up and what it has tapped into. So the next time that your wife gets mad at you, this is my suggestion. Why don't you say to her in your most soothing, calming voice, honey, is there anything I can do right now to help your amygdala settle down a little bit? <laughs> and let me know how that goes. You try it out this week, let me know next week. Um, I'm a marital counsellor, anything I stuff up I can fix, so we'll fix it next week if I've messed something up in your relationship. The interesting thing, and one of the reasons I wanted to tell you about the amygdala, was that it's soft touch that activates a hormone called oxytocin and deactivates the amygdala. In other words, it settles it down. What doesn't it settle it down is telling your partner to settle down. How well does that work when your child is upset? Your five-year-old is incredibly upset because they dropped their ice cream and they've lost the whole ice cream and you tell them, it's okay, don't worry, I'll buy you another one. And the child continues to cry because they lost that ice cream that they wanted. It doesn't work well to tell people just to calm down and settle down. But what do we do with young children? We often just put our arms around them. We use soft and gentle touch and that makes a difference. Soft touch activates oxytocin, which is sometimes known as the cuddle hormone, because cuddling also activates oxytocin. Do you know that eye contact activates another part of the brain, the orbitofrontal cortex, and thus a loving look can calm the fears of somebody that we are in connection with, that we are close to. Just eye contact itself can be really, really powerful in calming the amygdala. Some cohorts of American college students have been surveyed and studied 
And the interesting thing is it shows that there has been a decline in empathy since the year 2000. A marked decline in the last two decades in the empathy levels of American college students. What happened about the year 2000? Well, some of you here aren't old enough to remember much about the year 2000, but I remember it very well. I sent my first email, I think, in 1996. I heard about emails in about 93, 94, sent my first email in 96, and about the year 2000, we started using social media and we started using electronic means of communication. I doubt that it is a coincidence that about that time, we started to measure lower levels of empathy in people. Let me tell you about yet another mechanism. This is called the central vagus nerve. This is a really fascinating thing that does all sorts of things in your body. But one of the things that it does is when you are listening to somebody, listening intently to somebody, you emit little sighs that you're not even aware of. These are mediated by the vagus nerve and it slows down your heart rate and provides psychological soothing for you so that you don't get triggered by the story that's being told and also it provides psychological soothing for the person that you're listening to. In other words, for the speaker. Isn't that incredible? That's how attuned we are to each other or can be to each other. Did you know that in an experiment where somebody was experiencing pain, that holding their partner's hand actually lowered the level of pain that they felt? Maybe that's why when women are giving birth to children, they squeeze their partner's hand so tight that they almost restrict the blood flow, desperately trying to lower the pain of of childbirth. But interesting, they've been able to measure that the levels of pain that somebody feels are lower when they hold their partner's hand than if they hold the stranger's hand, and even lower if they hold no hand at all. Gentle touch releases oxytocin and endorphins and also helps soothe the amygdala, that part of your brain that tends to go off pretty quickly, the part that holds and stores your emotional memories, stores the pain, the hurt, the rejection, all of the things that have happened in your life that haven't been good, stored there in the amygdala. Anybody who knows anything about even the basic psychology will have heard of the fight and flight response. Most of you here will have heard of that. And that's our survival mechanism. Sometimes we've got to get out of there. Sometimes we've got to fight in order to survive. In anxiety, of course, that gets messed up. And that fight and flight mechanism goes off even when it doesn't need to. With people who suffer, who suffer from panic disorder, for example, who suffer from panic attacks, their fight and flight mechanism goes off and tells them they're in danger when they're not in danger at all. That's really what's happening, one of the, the things that's happening with anxiety. There's another mechanism that has also been discovered, 
by a researcher called Shelley Taylor, and she believes that the fight and flight mechanism has been overemphasized, and that that tends to be more a male response to stressful situations. And the reason we've heard so much about it is that many of the researchers and the writers in the field of psychology have been men. So you get what you call confirmation bias. You, know, you, you find what it is that you're looking for or your own uh, biases as a researcher influence the research that occurs. Shelley Taylor identified another reaction to stress and that's called tend and befriend. So not just fight and flight, but tend and befriend. So mammals were seen to want to protect their children and to turn to the community for support. Women also more likely to firstly ask in a stressful situation about the people close to them. That's the first question. That's the first thing they want to make sure that people are okay. And then they look to the community for support, tend and befriend. Of course, that reaction is also fueled by oxytocin. Oxytocin, that hormone that we've talked about before that's released during sex, it's released during childbirth, it's released during uh, gentle massage, gentle touch, cuddling, breastfeeding. A really important part of our, our hard wiring for connection. In times of stress, in times of trauma or danger, we are not meant to be tough and strong and brave on our own. We are meant to turn to others. We are meant to be soothed by others. We're meant to be soothed by their touch. We're meant to be soothed by their eye contact. We're meant to be soothed by their calm spirit. That's how we're meant to get through tough times. Keltner suggests that we are a caretaking species. The reward centres in our brains light up when we are giving care to others. Do you know that? It's not just your imagination that you feel good. You don't just feel good because you are doing what you should be as a Christian. Ah, no. You feel good because of a chemical reaction in your brain that actually rewards you doing things for others because we are designed as a caretaking species. And so our brain rewards us when we give to others. When we are there for others, our brain actually lights up the reward center. It is indeed more blessed to give than to receive. In the beginning, when creation was new, fresh, and unspoiled from the Creator's hand, like a freshly painted canvas, there is a man. We know him as Adam. He walks around the garden and he notices that all the animals have somebody that they're paired up with. They have a mate, a friend, somebody to mate with, a friend with benefits, if you like. And Adam realises that he hasn't got one. He would also like a friend, perhaps also with benefits. And the way the Bible puts it, it almost makes it think that God forgot to make Eve. But I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure God didn't go, oh, 
whoops, I was meant to make some. Oh, quick, let's, you know, get back to the beach. Some more sand. Yeah, form, shape, a woman. Don't think so. But the important part of that story, the really significant part, Oh, that's just a summary of, okay, we need the next one. This is the one we... The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And I would suggest to you that those words echo through the millenniums. God is still saying that it is not good for us to be alone. We need a helper. We need to be in community. We need to be in... We need to be connected. And this is not just for the raging extroverts, not just for the social butterflies, not just for the people who are very confident in social situations, but also for the rest of us, the shy, those who find relationships challenging, those who are really strong introverts and would just like to be on their own for most of the time. It is for us as well. God He's asking us, God is telling us that we are meant to live in connection with others. So what is it that holds us back from doing that? What is it? If we are wired that way, if our biology has made us because we've been created to connect, why don't we do that more? Why do we come to church and only talk to the people we normally talk to, to the same people? Why do we isolate when life gets tough? Loneliness is the plague of modern life. And isn't that strange? Isn't that weird that it is easier to communicate than it ever has been? We have many more ways of communi communicating. And yet as a society, we're more disconnected and alienated from each other than we've ever been even though we actually have more means for connection. Could I suggest to you, firstly, that being in relationship can be really inconvenient. It can be incredibly inconvenient. For some, relationships are easier than others, as we've said before. But for all of us, sometimes we're not in the mood, Sometimes we get tired, we're stressed, we're overwhelmed. We may even be suffering with depression, anxiety or grief or loss or some other serious thing. And of course, sometimes when you're suffering with those things, maybe you do need more time on your own. And I get that. But do you know that one of the highest risk factors for depression is lack of social connection? One of the highest risk factors to developing depression is not having an adequate social network. I would suggest to you that technology has done us no favour in this regard. Because it is easier to send a text to somebody than to actually go and visit them. It is easier to check up on Facebook than invite them out for a cup of coffee and sit down and connect and give eye contact. It may be more convenient to do that, but it's not necessarily better. The benefits of social interaction have been well documented in social science research. 
the beneficial effects of religion, and they've been well established, that religion appears to be good for you when it comes to mental health. And people, particularly with certain types of re religious practice, seem to have lower levels of depression and lower levels of anxiety. One of the reasons that researchers think that is because of the fact that religious people do community regularly. It's called going to church. Other types of groups that we're part of, and that's possibly what mediates that beneficial effect and what mediates that uh, correlation. Did you know that in, an experiment, in, in, in a number of experiments they've done, simply having the camera on when you're talking to somebody online actually lowers the level of cruelty said in the statements that are made. Isn't that incredible? In experiments, they've been able to find this, that if people are actually seeing each other, it is harder to be cruel to each other. It is harder to make the sort of statements that you can so easily make. If you're not sure about that, just ask 14 or 15-year-old teenagers at this school or at any school about cyberbullying. And I remember as a school council being absolutely horrified at the vitriol that would come across the text message at two in the morning for some of my clients. It just makes it easier to be mean to each other and to be downright nasty when you don't have that face-to-face -face connection. Email can so easily go wrong and text messages are a terrible way to try to solve interpersonal conflicts. I've even known of people whose relationships have ended via text message. Can you believe that? After going out for six months or a year, and boys kind of tend to do this because boys are chicken and they don't want to face the music. Uh, it's more likely that boys are going to do this. But they will send the girlfriend a text message and say, sorry, I don't think things are working out anymore for us. Um, I really hope you have a nice life. How cruel is that? How terrible is that? What have we come to as a society? Secondly, the second reason that I think we find connection perhaps hard and don't nurture our connections in the way that the good Lord designed us to is because we've been told that to be dependent in any way is pathological. After all, there's emotional maturity, not independence. Doesn't it mean that we are strong, brave, and tough? Hasn't pop psychology told us that often enough? Find yourself, value your own opinion, do find your own path, do what you need to do in life. But to what purpose? To what purpose? Just to satisfy ourselves? The Bible has a name for that. It calls it selfishness. Should that not be any personal journey or growth that we go on, should that not be for the purpose of blessing others? Is that not God's purpose? Is that not God's design? I'm tempted to ask you to put your hand up if you've watched the recent series of Married at First Sight, but I won't. Because people who watch trash television don't usually like to go public about that. 
But there will be some of you here, I know, and you'll probably privately tell me after the service that you've watched Married at First Sight. I watch it for academic reasons. I watch it in order to analyze. I'm a couples therapist. I teach couple therapy. It's important for me to analyze relationships. And my wife and I, I'm going to throw her under the bus here, we sit there and we analyze people's relationships. I might say that's easier than talking about our own, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but we talk about the different reasons that most of them end up so disastrously. And those of you who have watched the show will know that it is not unusual for a number of people in any season of Married at First Sight to say something like this. I have come here to fall in love and I will do whatever it takes to do that. I've got to look out for me. And often that's said as a way of justifying really, really bad behaviour, including lying and cheating and all kinds of things that happen on that show. The uh, way that relationships happen there is a great lesson in how not to do relationships. It's a paradoxical show. It's set up to tell you how not to do it. Thirdly, I wanted to um, wanted to just uh, share this quote with you and if I could read it up the back, but I can't, so I'm going to have to turn around. Um, we're building Sue Johnson. She is one of the leading uh, couple in the world in the stuff that she has produced, the particular modality that she's come up with for working with couples called Emotionally Focused Therapy, well published and regarded as one of the world's leading authorities on couples therapy. And this is what she writes, we are building a culture of separateness that is at odds with our biology. Building a culture of separateness that is at odds with our biology. I tend to agree with Dr. Sue Johnson. Thirdly, the third reason that we find relationships challenging is because we've been hurt in the past. We've made ourselves vulnerable. We connected with somebody, and then for some reason they didn't want anything to do with us anymore, and we've never been told why, and we've never understood why they don't want to hang out with us, why they don't want to connect with us, why they don't return our text messages or our phone calls, and we've been hurt. And so we have taken the understandable way out, but the easy way out, to go, I'm just not going to do it. Relationships are too scary. It's too risky. I've just been rejected too often. And that, of course, may have a family history to it. That may have started with things that happened in your childhood. If perhaps your, one of your parents weren't available to you. And you lost your father or the, your mother for one reason or another early in life and you learnt that attachment is a dangerous and scary thing and best avoided. And you develop maybe early in life what we call an avoidant attachment style. If I don't trust, if I don't take risks, I'm less likely to get hurt. 
the amygdala that is so determined to protect you goes off and says, you've been hurt before, don't go there. Don't think about it, just run, just go away. And you don't know that that's necessarily happening. You just know that you need to withdraw. You need to pull back. You need to protect yourself. You need to put your walls up. And while that's a self-protective strategy, works short term, I do believe that we pay a price for disconnecting. Miss out on the benefits of doing that for which we were created. And others miss out as well. We may believe that we have not much to add to the lives of others. But you know what? I want to tell you this morning, based on the authority of God's word, that you're unique and God can't replace you. Because God doesn't make clones. God hasn't made anybody else like you. And God's got stuff he wants you to do with your talents, with your personality, with your uniqueness, with who you are. He wants you to use those wonderful neurobiological mechanisms to connect, to make a difference. I think there is no better example of empathic joining, connection, than the incarnation. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and lived for a while amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I love that passage. It is so rich and it says so much. It's a very familiar passage. You've heard it hundreds of times. I've heard it hundreds or thousands of times. I've read it many times and it still speaks to me. If God had stayed in heaven and sent us a message, perhaps via text, that he felt sorry for us, that would have been sympathy. But when God came down, wrapped in the womb of a young Hebrew virgin, descended the birth canal and arrived in a cow shed, that was empathy. That was empathy. That was saying, I'm here to now feel your pain to experience what it is like to be human. And we find that in the incarnation, Jesus gets his hands dirty. He gets his body bruised and nailed to a cross. What an inconvenience. How inconvenient was that? The incarnation cost God, cost God severely. When God wants to connect with us, 
he does the ultimate. He gives his son. He gives a part of himself. When he wants to make a statement about who he is, he sends himself. Isn't that the magic of the Christian faith? The incarnation? God became flesh, walked amongst us. I think the implications for us are outlined beautifully in Philippians 2, 4 to 8. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this morning we've painted the backdrop for you. We've talked about mirror neurons, we've talked about the vagus nerve, the insula, the amygdala, oxytocin, how parts of the brain reward us for doing good to others, how parts of the brain allow us to feel the pain of others, literally. We've also talked about how being in community can be hard, how it can be inconvenient how it can be scary and how it may involve taking risks. What we haven't done this morning is the how-to. What are some of the principles of being in relationship? Whatever that relationship may be, what are some things that work better than others? Well, the reason we haven't told you that this morning is because I want you to have lunch at a reasonable hour. Also, because we want you to come back next week because we're going to talk about this next week, building on the foundation that we've laid today. We're going to flesh this out more next week and do a much more of a how-to. This morning, I want you to value the relationships that you have and value the relationships that you are yet still to have, that God still has for you, the people that you are still going to meet who are going to enrich your life. Treasure the way God has made you. Embrace the good and the bad of relationships, the joy, the laughter and the tears, the delight and the despair, and never give up on relationships. Don't take the easier way out, for you are created to be in community, to be in relationship. You are created to do life together.